that's uh, those individuals, our students who are grades K through five. We have a class specifically for you. Your teachers are waiting for you at the back. You will receive a Sunday school lesson um, just for you, for your age. And so just head, uh, just head to the back um, and you will uh, go to your class and then you'll come back at the end of the service and be reunited with your parents. We have been in this series, this sermonic series, in Philippians, what we've titled Gospel Worthy Living. This Sunday, we are in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to study the entire chapter of Philippians chapter 3. So we'll go all through Philippians chapter 3 and also read the first verse of chapter 4. So if you have your copy of God's Word, Holy Scripture, the Bible, turn to Philippians chapter number 3. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, we have a couple of options for you so you can follow along with us. We have copies of God's Word on the, the hospitality table at the back. You are free to uh, take one of those. You can have them, actually, if you do not have your own copy of God's Word. Um, that's our gift to you. Uh, we believe that there is power in the Word of God, power to change lives, power to save lives. And so we want you to have a copy of God's Word. So uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, um, if you don't have a physical copy, you, want to, you can also follow along with us on the screen. Philippians chapter number 3 beginning with verse number one. Our custom here at the British Church is to stand in honor and reverence to God's holy word. So if you are willing and able, please stand with us as we hear from the voice of God. Philippians chapter three, beginning with verse number one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. If anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Verse 17. Brothers, join in in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you know, 15 months ago, God brought a newborn into our lives, Lily. She's now 19 months old, forming many words. Just yesterday, my wife was talking, we were having conversation. And when my wife was talking, she would use a term of endearment. She'd say, baby. Then all of a sudden, I hear this little voice from down low saying, baby, baby. Now, my wife, when she doesn't call me that term of endearment, she calls me by my middle name, Dion. She rarely calls me Brandon. The only time I get called Brandon is when I'm in trouble. And so she'll say, Dion. And all of a sudden, I hear this little voice saying, Dion. And all I could do was chuckle and laugh, even though I wanted to chastise her. In my culture, you don't call parents, especially by their middle name. (laughs) we, We have learned 
We have taught our kids that it's important that you watch what you say around her because she's in this stage of mimicking, this stage of imitation. We, we, we don't allow our kids to say shut up to one another. Every, every now and then, though, they get so heated, it'll slip out. Shut up. Next thing I know, here goes Lily. I'm like, oh, my gosh. She's just in this phase of imitation. She is learning language. She is learning culture through imitating others. And Paul actually, in chapter 3, he wants us all to be little lilies. He wants us to imitate. So today's message, I've titled, Watch Out, Watch Me. Watch out, watch me. Let's see it together. Paul says the first thing that I want you to learn to do is to imitate those who put their confidence in Christ alone. Imitate those who put their confidence in Christ alone. One of the rhetorical devices that Paul uses to make his points in the book of Philippians is he uses paradigms. He, he, he uses examples, exemplars. Last week, we studied Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. He gave us the examples of Epaphroditus and Timothy. And he says, we want you to follow their examples. They prioritize the gospel. In chapter 2, in that great Christ hymn, he talks about Jesus Christ. He wants us to have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus. And he tells us about this Christ Jesus who was in the form of God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He, he gives us Christ as the model, the example of humility. And we are to pattern our lives after these examples. And so now Paul is continuing to use this rhetorical device of exemplars and saying, here's the example for you to mod model your life after. And so he says, the first example that I'm going to give you in Philippians chapter 3 is those who put their confidence in Christ. Those are the ones that you should, whose example you should follow. But before he gets to the positive example, he gives us, first of all, the negative example that we are not to follow. Verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who, who mutilate the flesh. That word translated look out, it means to beware, to watch out, to, to see, to keep your eyes open. And this is something that's very important to him because he says, look out three times in one verse. What Paul is doing is he's warning his readers to look out for a specific kind of threat. He identifies this threat as those using three different images. The first is a dog. Now, you must understand that in biblical times, 
Dogs were not man's best friend. A dog in ancient times would never be a house pet. In the ancient world, dogs were generally abhorred, seen as the most despicable, miserable of creatures who roamed the streets scavenging. They, they were considered to be unclean considering how they would eat dead things like other animals, human corpse, and their own vomit. And so he says, he uses this term dog, which was a term that Jews would use to describe Gentiles, who they considered to be unclean. And so Paul says he uses this term to describe this threat to the Philippian church. He says, watch out for the dogs. He says, not only do I want you to watch out for these dogs, but I also want you to watch out for these evildoers, these ones doing evil. In what way were they dogs? In what way were they evildoers? I'm glad you asked. I think that we find that in his third warning. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. The issue here is circumcision. What we can uh, conclude is that there were certain individuals who were teaching those in the Philippian church that in order to be a Christian, you had to be circumcised. Why was this such a big deal for these false teachers? Because they, in trying to be a faithful Jew, they remember in Genesis 17, God tells Abraham that every male among them was to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. Circumcision was a sign that one was an actual member of the chosen people of God. So now in Philippi, there were certain people who taught that in order for one to be a true Christian, you had to be circumcised. And if you were not circumcised, you were not an actual member of the family of God. Therefore, you were not redeemed. And Paul says that these false teachers are dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Why does he use such strong, harsh language? Because they are perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are distorting the good news. Paul says, they are not actually the circumcision, God's chosen people. We are the circumcision, whether we are circumcised or not. We are the true circumcision. Those who are the, the true people of God, are those, according to verse 3, who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus. They're, they're, the word glory can also can be translated boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, a Christian is one who has placed full confidence and trust in Christ alone. And Paul says that if anyone teaches a doctrine contrary to this one, watch out for them. Don't follow their example. Don't listen to them. Don't believe them. Paul goes on to bolster his arguments and say, 
if anyone had reason to put confidence in the flesh, it's me. And he goes off. He says, let me give you my resume. He says, I'm a real Jew, circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to law-keeping, blameless. In regards to zeal for the law, you can see how zealous I was in that I persecuted the church. In regard to conduct and behavior under the law, faultless. Paul's point here is that I have every reason to put confidence in the flesh based on my ethnic identity and fidelity to the law. He says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul does something here. He, he becomes a, what I would call a gospel accountant. He starts using this accounting language of gain and loss. He gives us the, a divine profit and loss statement. Paul says, I'm going to do some divine accounting for you. Paul says, all of the gains that I have, being a Jew, being from the tribe of Benjamin, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, being circumcised on the eighth day, being faultless according to the law, being zealous. He says, all of those gains, I consider those to be loss for Christ. Why does Paul do this? Paul knows that to place any confidence in the flesh is to nullify the cross. Friends, to place any confidence in the flesh is to make the cross insufficient. If we place confidence in anything or anyone else besides Christ alone, we nullify the grace of God. Remember, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, that we are saved by grace through faith. And friends, grace plus Anything else is no longer grace. Therefore, Paul says, what I consider to be assets, my Jewish heritage, I now consider to be liabilities. Because these things all tempt me to put confidence in those things rather than Christ alone. Verse 8, Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's still using a, a county language when he says worth here. He says, everything is considered lost because of the infinite value of knowing Christ. Paul says, friends, that there is nothing greater than knowing Jesus Christ. There's no amount of money, there's no career, there's no car, there's no position, there's no education, there's no fame, there's no person, there's no boo, there's no power greater than the infinite worth of knowing Jesus Christ. But the question we have to ask one another is, what does Paul mean when he says, Knowing Christ. If we're not careful, we'll think Paul means the accumulation of head knowledge, the accumulation of facts about Christ. 
But that's not what Paul is about. When he talks about knowing Christ, he says he's referring to knowing Christ in the sense of having a personal relationship with him. It is to be a close acquaintance with someone. It is to learn through experience. It's like the relationship between husband and wife. There's some things my wife can already predict about me, what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to respond, because she knows me like nobody else. And Paul says, this is how, this is how, this is what the, this surpassing work is. This is how I want to know Christ. It's like a parent knows their child. This is a deep, intimate, experiential relationship with Christ. Paul says this knowledge of Christ is more valuable than anything else in the world. Friend, do you place infinite value on knowing Christ? If so, then renounce all self-reliance and self-confidence and trust in Christ alone. Do you consider knowing Christ to be of supreme worth? If so, stop placing so much value in people, possessions, and yourself. Paul says, for his sake, that's Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, He's actually using much stronger language there. Dung, human excrement, crap, doo-doo. That's how strong his language is here. He says, I get it all as crap just so that I may gain Christ. It's garbage. Paul says, even though I consider all things to be lost, I actually have a greater net worth now because I have Christ. The greatest treasure is Christ himself. Paul says this is the greatest gain. Christ is the greatest asset. If I have nothing else and I have Christ, I have all I need. I have more than enough. Friends, when you have Christ, your net worth is in. It is impossible to know the power of Christ's resurrection without participation in his sufferings. The hope of future resurrection, church, gives meaning and purpose to the reality of our present suffering. We can suffer well. We can endure and persevere because we know that this suffering is temporary because there's resurrection on the other side of this suffering. Friends, I'm, I'm convinced that suffering is actually evidence of an intimate relationship with Christ. We, 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 to, to experience the power of his res resurrection, we must be conformed to him in his death. His suffering. So friends, knowing Christ means that we may suffer, we will suffer for his sake. 
Because Christ suffered, we too will suffer. Christ suffered unto death. This may sound like a bummer, but that's not where the story ends. Friends, the good news is that is that death does not have the last word. Christ has defeated death. Christ won the victory over death when he got up bright early Sunday morning from the grave with all power in his hands. Because of Christ, the, the, the sting of death has been removed. And friends, right now, today, we can have the assurance of victory over our suffering. Paul says our hope of our future resurrection gives us the right perspective when we suffer in the present. And for Paul, this is an example worthy of our imitation. Can I just ask a question for you to ponder? What is your ultimate goal in life? Paul says, our ultimate goal should be that we may know him. Y'all just saying earlier, first song, Christ is enough. Is he really? Is gaining Christ enough? Are you content with having Christ? What has you so discontent, dissatisfied? Paul says our ultimate goal should be to know Christ. So imitate those who put their confidence in Christ alone and not the flesh. Secondly, he says, I want you also to imitate those who pursue maturity in Christ. I want you to imitate those who pursue, secondly, maturity in Christ. Imitate those who pursue maturity in Christ. Paul has just said in verse uh, verse 11 that his goal was to attain the resurrection from the dead. But Paul starts in this next section, he wants his readers to know that he doesn't consider himself to have reached the full knowledge of Christ that he will have at the resurrection of the dead. Verse 12, he says, instead, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Like a runner in a race, Paul says, I'm pressing on. I'm pursuing growth in this knowledge of Christ. But Paul goes back to make sure we have right theology. He can only pursue Christ in his sanctification, because Christ has first pursued him. I like Philippians. I really do. I really wanted to preach a couple of weeks ago when Paul said to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
Because now he comes back and deals with this theme a little bit. He says, I want you to press on. Paul is calling us in our sanctification to holy effort. When it comes to sanctification, we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. When it as it pertains to sanctification and us becoming more like Christ, this is not just a let go and let God. Uh-uh. Paul says, no, you're going to have to put in some holy effort. You're going to have to press on. You're going to have to run on. You're going to have to persevere. Now, now, let's make sure we get something very clear when it comes to our salvation. Us being rescued from the wrath of God, delivered. That, that we don't cooperate at all. Salvation is all of grace. It's all of Christ. We can do nothing. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that we need to be saved from. There is nothing we can do to be saved. That's all of Christ. But as it pertains in growing in our relationship with Christ, Paul says, yeah, you're going to have to put some effort into this. You're going to have to, to have some discipline. So he says, sanctification, becoming mature in Christ, is like running a race. And Paul says, let me give you my strategy for running this race. He says, that if you're going to run this race successfully, it's going to require some devotion. It requires some devotion. Paul says here in the text, I'm pressing on. Because I cannot give up. I cannot quit. No runner wins a race who quits prematurely. If you are going to run successfully this Christian race, you have to endure to the end in order to win. Paul says, not only am I going to be devoted, but I'm also going to be distraction-free. It's in the text. He says, one, but this one thing I do, Paul has a singular focus. He says, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Paul says, I'm not looking back at others who are behind me in this race to see how close they are to me. They don't matter. The prize is ahead of me, not behind me. See, the problem with us is that we do the very opposite. We look around us and we compare ourselves to other Christians. And we measure our progress based on how far ahead we are to them. But they're not the standard. Christ is. So Paul says, this one thing I do, this singular focus is, I'm going to stop looking behind me. I'm forgetting what's behind. No distractions. I'm not going to let my past keep me behind. What's behind me? My past accomplishments? That goes back to everything that Paul says about being a Jew, being circumcised, and all those other things. Paul says, I'm leaving it behind. Not only my accomplishments, but my past failures as well. In this race, I've got to cast off the waste that so easily beset me. That's behind me. I, I, I now have to be dedicated. 
I've got to strain forward. What's Paul trying to win? He says, I press on for this prize, this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, I'm just going to cut across the I think the prize is Christ himself. For Paul, if he was here, he would probably say Christ is my reward. I don't know Christ as I will know him intimately and relationally as, as when I see him in the resurrection. So I am trying to apprehend Christ. Thirdly, Paul says, imitate those who stand firm as they long for heaven. Imitate those who stand firm as they long for heaven. Look at verse 17. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. See what Paul has just done? Verse 2, look out for, look out for, look out for. Verse 17, he comes back. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Watch out, watch me. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul says, imitate me. Follow my example. Friends, this is Paul's way 
method, language of discipleship. Paul's method for making disciples is two-pronged, instruction and imitation. That's it. That's how you essentially make disciples. That's why here at the bridge, we have the four marks of discipleship here at the bridge church. We, we love God and others. We learn of Christ. We live by the Spirit. Remember, verse 3, the true circumcision is those who worship by the Spirit of God. Then finally, the fourth mark of a fully devoted follower of Christ at the British church is they lead others to Christ. This is not just evangelism, but it's also edification, helping people grow in Christ as well. That fourth mark of leading others to Christ, that's what Paul addresses here. He's saying he's leading them to follow his example as he follows Christ. And friends, that's what we desire here at the Bridge Church. We want people to imitate others as they imitate Christ. Question for reflection. Are you worth imitating? Can you say, as Paul said, follow my example. Walk like me. Paul makes it clear here that he and others like him are the examples to follow rather than this other group of people who walk as enemies of the cross. Now, much ink has been spilled over trying to identify who he's referring to as far as these enemies of the cross. You can come to your own conclusion. But here's what we know about these enemies of the cross. They are earthly-minded. They only think about life here on earth. They are short-sighted, and their lives prove it. And Paul says they are headed for destruction. And friends, this brings Paul to tears. I've got just a quick question as we get ready to get out of here. Does it really break our heart that there are people in our neighborhoods, in our city, in the world that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do, do we mourn over those who are enemies of the cross. For Paul, he says, this brings me to tears. Friends, I think we've just become too complacent. Some of us just got bad theology. We deal with this issue of the elect, those who have been chosen, those who have been predestined. And we just say, well, God has already predestined and chosen who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, so it doesn't matter what I do. That's what Satan wants you to think. That's stinking thinking. That's unsound theology. Yes, God has chosen. That's scripture. 
If you have a problem with it, argue with God. Ephesians 1. He chose those before the foundation of the world. I don't understand it all, but this is what God has done. But God has ordained the means by which those who are chosen will come to faith. What's the means? You to evangelize them. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10. But how can they call on whom they have not believed? How can they believe in whom they have not heard? How can they hear without a messenger? God says people who will be saved, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But in order for them to say, they have to believe. In order for them to believe, they have to hear. In order for them to hear, someone has to give them the message. You are God's messengers. So let's stop all this foolishness, arguing about election and, and predestination. None of us really know what it means. None of us really know how that all works. In the, it's a mystery. And there's something you just got to be able to just say, it's a mystery. I don't know. What, I don't completely understand it. I don't know why God does what it is. It may not seem fair to me, but God, I trust God. He's sovereign. He's good. He's righteous. He's holy. I trust him. And so I'm going to be busy and do what he told me to do. Tell somebody about Jesus. Friends, our hearts ought to break that our loved ones, our neighbors, our co-workers could burn in hell. Paul says, this brings me to tears that there are enemies of the cross. They're just earthly minded. Paul says, let me give you the contrast, though. Our citizenship is in heaven. Friends, we are citizens of heaven. Our king is King Jesus. Our primary allegiance is to a lamb, not a donkey or an elephant. Oh, that boy preaching in here. We are ambassadors of heaven. We are sent from heaven to earth to represent Christ on the earth to be a tangible expression of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. An ambassador's job is to represent he who sent him. Therefore, as citizens of heaven, we set our minds on things in heaven. In other words, we have a heavenward perspective. We have an eternal perspective. We consider the consequences of our actions based on eternity. We make decisions based on eternity. The problem with some of us in here right now is we're too short-sighted. We're too earthly-minded. We make decisions based on what's temporary and not on kingdom impact. Paul says, don't forget you are a citizen of heaven. 
we make decisions based on eternity. And Paul says, so we are citizens of heaven. And from it, heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul reminds us that our Lord is coming back. And friends, when he returns, we will experience the power of his resurrection. When he comes back, we will receive glorified bodies. This is free. I won't even charge you for this. We got to go. So I can't give you too much free stuff. For those who are dealing with who body, uh, bodies give them all sorts of problems. You've got diseases, conditions, sicknesses. Paul says, hold on. This too shall pass. You're going to get a new body. It'll be glorified. In this new body, there'll be no more sickness. No more pain. No more hurt. No more medication needed. No more pricks from needles. Paul says we're going to receive glorified bodies. And when we see him, friends, we'll be just like him. And so our prayer today is, even so come. Lord Jesus, come. Paul says, in the interim, while you wait, chapter 4, verse 1, stand firm. This is a call to perseverance, a call to endurance. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't you budge one inch. Stand. Fight. Endure. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us holy examples to follow. God, thank you for calling us to imitate those who put their confidence in Christ alone. Forgive us, Lord, for putting confidence in our flesh, our own accomplishments. Thank you for calling us to maturity, to growth in our relationship with Christ. God, reveal to us the things that we value more than Christ so that we can cast them aside and consider them, regard them, as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Make us more like Christ so that we can say to others, imitate me, follow me. Our prayer, even now, is even so come. Lord Jesus, come.
We look forward to that day when you will return and you will make all things right. Until then, give us the strength and the power to stand firm. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.